Panchakalpa Tribhyas Chakripa Sindhavi Evitapa Titanan Pavanavyo Vaishnavavya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So it's the 14th of June, 2020 from 26 2nd Avenue over Zoom and we're going to be um, is it possible to share my screen? Could I get permission to share my screen? We're going to be doing uh, Bhagavad Gita, Chapter 1, Observing the Armies on the Battle of Kurukshetra, Text 36. Papare Vashrayerasman Papare Vashrayerasman Hatvaitam atataina, Hatvaitam atataina, Tasmanarha vayam hantun, Tasmanarha vayam hantun, Dartarastran sabandavan, Dartarasta sabandavan, Swajanam hi katam hatva. Swajanam hi katam hatva Sukinam Sukina Shamamadava Sukina Shamamadava Papam Vices Eva Certainly Ashrayat Must come upon Asman, us, Hatva, by killing, Eitan, all these, Atatayinaha, aggressors, Tazmat, therefore, Na, never, Arha, Deserving. Vayam. We. Hantum. To kill. Dhartarastran. The sons of Dhritarashtra. Sabandavan. Along with friends. Swajanam. Kinsman. He. Certainly. Katam. How? Hatva. By killing. Sukina. Happy. Shama. Will we become? Madhava. O Krishna, husband of the goddess of fortune. Srila Prabhupada's translation. Sin will overcome us if we slay such aggressors. Therefore, it is not proper for us to kill the sons of Dhritarashtra and our friends. What should we gain, O Krishna, husband of the goddess of fortune? And how could we be happy by killing our own kinsmen? Shiva Prabhupada's purport. 
According to Vedic injunctions, there are six kinds of aggressors. One, a poison giver. So, of course, the Kurus already gave poison to Bhima. Two, one who sets fire to the house. So, they did that. They burned up the house of Lack. Three, one who attacks with deadly weapons. Uh, they already did that, especially when the Pandavas were in, uh, incognito and in the forest. Four, one who plunders riches. They did that by cheating in the gambling match, taking away the kingdom. Five, one who occupies another's land. So they did that. They took away the Pandavas' land. Six, one who kidnaps a wife. They did that by grabbing Draupadi after the gambling match and trying to strip her naked. Such aggressors are at once to be going on with the purport. Such aggressors are at once to be killed, and no sin is incurred by killing such aggressors. Such killing of aggressors is quite befitting any ordinary man. But Arjuna was not an ordinary man, not an ordinary person. He was saintly by character, and therefore he wanted to deal with them in saintliness. This kind of saintliness, however, is not for a ksatriya. Although a responsible man in the administration of a state is required to be saintly, he should not be cowardly. For example, Lord Rama was so saintly that people even now are anxious to live in the kingdom of Lord Rama, Ram Raja. But Lord Rama never showed any cowardice. Ravana was an aggressor against Ravana, against Rama, sorry, because Ravana kidnapped Ram's wife Sita. But Lord Rama gave him sufficient lessons unparalleled in the history of the world. In Arjuna's case, however, one should consider the special type of aggressors, namely his own grandfather, own teacher, friends, sons, grandsons, etc. Because of them, Arjuna thought that he should not take the severe steps necessary against ordinary aggressors. Besides that, saintly persons are advised to forgive. Such injunctions for saintly persons are more important than any political emergency. I'm going to read that again. Saintly persons are advised to forgive. Such injunctions for saintly persons are more important than any political emergency. Arjuna considered that rather than kill his own kinsmen for political reasons, it would be better to forgive them on grounds of religion and saintly behavior. He did not, therefore, consider such killing profitable simply for the matter of temporary bodily happiness. After all, kingdoms and the pleasures derived therefrom are not permanent. So why should he risk his life and eternal salvation by killing his own kinsmen? Arjuna's addressing Krishna as Madhava, or the husband of the goddess of fortune, is also significant in this connection. He wanted to point out to Krishna that as the husband of the goddess of fortune, he should not induce Arjuna to take up a matter which would ultimately bring about misfortune. Krishna, however, never brings misfortune to anyone, to say nothing of his devotee. Papam evashrayet asman hatvaitam atatyayina tasmad narha vayam hantum dartarastan sabandavan swajanam hi kita hatva sukinam shama madava 
Sin will overcome us if we slay such aggressors. Therefore, it is not proper for us to kill the sons of Dhritarashtra and our friends. What should we gain, O Krishna, husband of the goddess of fortune? And how could we be happy by killing our own kinsmen? So, of course, this is a very significant verse in the Bhagavad Gita where Arjuna is really considering. Srila Prabhupada speaks on this verse in London in 1973 uh, in July. And he talks about how Arjuna is a very saintly person whose concern is with doing the right thing. He doesn't want to engage in papa. He doesn't want to engage in sin. Uh, He starts off this verse with papa. He doesn't want to engage in anything that's sinful. He wants to do the right thing. And Srila Prabhupada points out that the difference between the devas and the asuras, the difference between good people and bad people, shall we say, pious people and impious people, is that they think, am I doing the right thing? You know, many times in life, there's things we can do to satisfy our desires, but those things are not proper. <laughs> they're not ethical. They're not moral. They're not spiritually good. You know, an animal can't consider, is this thing going to be good or not? I mean, an animal might consider, am I going to be punished or will I be eaten by my enemy? But they can't consider, is this pious or impious? And human beings can consider, is, is what I'm doing pious or impious. And Arjuna's considering like different considerations here. He's, he's considering, well, there's the Artha Shastras and the Dharma Shastras, there's saintliness, there's Satriya activities, there's normal aggressors, and then there's family. And, you know, so he, he's kind of considering these, these three different opposing elements and trying to come up with the best choice. And I think many of us end up, hopefully not, as far as killing our family members. Hopefully we've never... uh, But it happens. I mean, in the United States, which is where I am at present, there's a lot of discussion right now about racism. And of course, racism in this country has its roots in slavery, its roots in the Europeans going to sub-Saharan Africa and kidnapping the black Africans for use as slaves. Of course, something we don't like to talk about is that generally it was black Africans who kidnapped other black Africans and sold them to the Europeans. Uh, Anyway, Hare Krishna. But the point is that these people were brought over in, in horrendous conditions and then they were treated horrendously. They were... You know, their their whole culture was destroyed, and and so forth, and and so on. You know, so there's there's this concept of what's fair and and what's right, and what should we do, and how should we treat people. I mean, this it's very much something that's that's uh, the public is thinking about today, and this is the kind of thing Arjuna is thinking about. What's what's the right thing to do? How should I treat people? What is what is civilized? You know, I'm not going to just mistreat people for the sake of getting a kingdom. You know, this, this concept that we can, we can kill people, we can enslave people for the sake of getting a kingdom. It's not, it's not correct. You know, and finally, when the, 
when people in the United States started feeling that, well, slavery is wrong, then there was a war between brothers. I mean, there really was. The Civil War is a war between brothers, and there were times that quite literally, on two different sides of the battlefield, were brothers or cousins or fathers and sons from the same family that were fighting each other. And, you know, that's a... It happens. It happened in this country. It happens in other places. It happened at the time of Arjuna that it was a a civil war. It wasn't a war between one country and the other. And it's very difficult in a civil war to try to identify people as an enemy. And so this is, Arjuna's trying to figure out, you know, how how do I do the right thing? What's the right thing to do? And, of course, the, the final conclusion that Srila Prabhupada makes in this purport is that whatever Krishna does is auspicious for everybody, especially his devotee. And so Arjuna, using this word Madhava, husband of the goddess of fortune, Arjuna's using it, according to Srila Prabhupada and our Acharyas, as a way of, you know, kind of challenging Krishna. Well, you're... You're married to fortune herself. Why would you suggest something? Why would you want me to take part in something that's unfortunate? But also his use of the word Madhava indicates that there's no way that this could be unfortunate, that what Krishna's asking must be fortunate. Just like in the Civil War, although people had to fight against brothers, to fight against brothers in order to stop slavery was a higher principle than whether or not you're fighting with your brothers. Now that's, we find such situations true throughout history that you have to think, okay, my father's on the other side, my brother's on the other side, but is the cause I'm fighting for worth violating this lower principle? You know, what's the lower principle? What's the higher principle? And our highest principle, we're going to look at three ways of looking at a lower principle and a higher principle. Our highest principle is I'm a servant of Krishna, and what would please the Lord? How can I act as a servant of Krishna? When Prabhupada speaks on this verse, he, he comes to that point, about two-thirds or halfway through the class. He starts coming to the point that we're not this body, we're a servant of Krishna. So let's look at these three ways of understanding higher and lower. So our, our acharyas bring out, like Baladev Vijabhushan, Vishnu Chakravati Thakur, they bring up what Srila Prabhupada talks about at the beginning of this purport, the Artha Shastras. The Artha Shastras are how to be happy in the world. And they say that you can instantly kill these six kinds of aggressors. And such laws exist in most of the world. If somebody comes on your property to set fire to your house, to kidnap your wife, I would assume the same would be if they wanted to kidnap your children, uh, you know, they give you poison, they, they try to kill you, or they try to harm uh, your dependents, you are allowed to immediately kill them. And there's no sin, there's no illegality. Again, if, if somebody breaks into your house and tries to, to kidnap your wife, kidnap your daughter, burn down your house, you can just shoot them. And you're not going to be culpable. And as we've mentioned in reading through the purport, the Kurus had displayed all six of these types of aggressors directly against Arjuna and his brothers. But then there are the Dharma Shastras that say, don't hurt anybody. Just don't 
give violence to anybody. And, and Krishna talks about this in the uh, 12th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, where he says those who are not disturbed by anyone and who don't give disturbance to anyone. Those people are very dear to me. And Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur quotes Yagnavalka as saying that the Dharma Shastras are higher than the Artha Shastras. So when there is a conflict between the Artha Shastras that say you can kill these six aggressors and the Dharma Shastras that says don't be a source of violence to anybody, one should follow the Dharma Shastras. Of course, we have the incident where Gandhi was taking a position of absolute nonviolence, and he said that if his daughter's chastity was violated in his presence, he would remain nonviolent. And Srila Prabhupada said that that was utter nonsense. Also, we do have a situation here with Arjuna that although these people were aggressors in all six of these ways, he's not dealing with these aggressors at the time of their aggression on the battlefield. And that does make a big difference. For example, in modern law, you know, if you, you walk in your house and somebody's raping your wife and you kill that person, you're not going to be held legally responsible. However, if you come home after your wife has been raped and you take it on yourself to find the rapists and kill them in cold blood, you are a murderer. And you will be charged with first-degree murder. And in fact, you will be held more legally responsible than the rapist. That becomes the business of law enforcement and the government to punish the rapist, not you. So we have that situation here also with Arjuna when he's now here on the battlefield. The crews are not in that moment administering poison. They're not in that moment insulting Jopati. I mean, it's, it's like the time to respond with violence is, is past as far as immediately killing the aggressor. So we have here this, this conflict between the Artha Shastras and the Dharma Shastras. And Arjuna is saying, and he's right, that the Dharma Shastras are higher. Therefore, he's saying that sin will overtake us if we slay these aggressors. Even though they're aggressors, we'll be sinful for killing them. And he's, he's completely correct on that score. You know, if somebody has harmed you and you become a vigilante and you take it on yourself to have revenge and kill that person, that is just absolutely wrong. One is not, we, we may understand it, but it's not the correct thing to do. All right, let's go to the second conflict. The second conflict is with family members. So Arjuna is saying, Swajana, they're my people. Srila Prabhupada, in lecturing on this verse, speaks quite a lot about the, the concept of family members. That he says, if the person who's the aggressor is your son, then you may hesitate to punish them. And, you know, we, we find such things all the time. All the time. That, you know, if a person who harms us even significant harm is, is our own person, is a family member. We will tend to excuse them. I mean, in general, parents tend to excuse children. They, they have to. You couldn't raise your children 
uh, to maturity if you didn't frequently excuse them. And we often will excuse our spouse. You know, we know, I'm sure we all know many, many people whose spouse was unfaithful and the other spouse forgave them and took them back. I mean, it's, I'm sure we all know people like that. I mean, we had the, the former president of our country was in that situation. But I'm sure we know, you know, people within our friends circle or whatever. We may know of such people and we may know them personally that, okay, this is my husband, this is my wife. Uh, I mean, I got an email just within the last month or so of one devotee who found out that his wife had an illicit affair and he decided to forgive her and take her back and, and try to restore the family. So this is, it's a very common thing. Or if your parents do something wrong, or even, even not in the family, it may be a very close friend. This tendency exists many times in our spiritual family. Uh, and there's this tendency that well, this, is my, this is a member of my spiritual family, this is a member of my sangha, and so even though they've done something wrong, because they're a member of my sangha, I'll forgive them. And just recently I was talking to somebody about this, about a devotee friend of ours who did something really horrifically wrong. And my friend was saying, would we respond differently to this situation if the person was not a devotee? I mean, we were really pondering it. How do we respond I think part of the reason swajana, swa means one's own. We almost feel like persons who are our family, our friends, our tribe, are extensions of ourselves. A prophet talks about an extended selfishness, and well, we kind of have to keep forgiving ourselves because, you know, I can't really like block myself on social media or. And what am I supposed to do to myself? I have to keep uh, living with myself even though I offend myself and I disappoint myself in so many ways. So we have this tendency to be forgiving of people who we see are extensions of ourselves. Uh, you, we can also see a fine, kind of like as a biological imperative that uh, we're dependent on other people to live. We're, we're social animals, we're herd animals. And if we reject people within our group, it makes it very hard for us to live. So therefore, Prabhupada would talk about this as extended selfishness, that I'm, when I'm forgiving family, when I'm forgiving friends, when I'm forgiving people in my group, that a lot of it may have to do with just, well, how would I survive? You know, if, if I'm going to be harsh with people in my group as much as I would be with people outside my group. And this tendency of being much more forgiving with people with whom we identify than we are with people outside our group is, is pretty universal. They, we talk, they talk about moral circles and how that almost everybody has their, their own moral circle, that people within their circle they have a certain standard for, and people outside their circle they have another standard and often what, ha what happens if we decide not to forgive somebody within that circle is we have to remove them from the circle. We have to make them the enemy. Uh, well, you know, I, I saw this happen recently. We call, it, call the, give the dog a bad name and hang him. So, you know, I've seen actually many times where if some family member does something that, you know, you just think is unforgivable, you say, oh, they're not really family anymore. You know, they're not, it's not really my mother, it's not, they're not really my brother. Or 
you know, with devotees, oh, they're not really a devotee. They're, they're actually a pretender, they're actually a demon. We, that we have to remove them from our circle because it's very difficult to say we're going to keep them in our circle and, and not forgive them. This tendency is very much behind a lot of what we see in the world that people become so incensed over where we will excuse, you know, today there's a lot of talk about race relations and police brutality and people ask why are the police so forgiving of other police who are brutal but it's it's this basic thing that's operating that well this is my group this is my tribe this is my circle and when someone in my circle does something wrong I'm, I'm going to be more I'm going to have more of a tendency to overlook it so this is definitely Arjun, where Arjuna is saying Swajana how can I kill people who are my family and not only family but these are acharyas, and the fact that these are that he's talking about acharyas overlaps what we first talked about—the artha shastras versus the dharma shastras—and here we're talking about family. So there's not only family, but these are revered elders in my family. And in every culture of the world, people are taught honor your father and mother, right? Honor your family elders, and in some cultures, it's. It's very extreme, this concept of honoring the family elders. Like we read about how Krishna and Balaram every day would touch the feet of Vasudeva and Devaki in the morning. And such a concept isn't so prevalent among uh, you know, modern people in, in Western countries, this idea of honoring authorities within the family or within your own group. But it's in highly collectivist societies and highly traditional societies, it's... It's so strong that you would just never think. I mean, Prabhupada also in a purport in the Bhagavad Gita says that the. I believe it's also in the first chapter, might be the second, where Prabhupada says that our authorities are not to be offered even a verbal fight. So even if your authority does something wrong, you don't offer them even a verbal fight. Now, this concept is not very much appreciated in 2020, especially in Western countries. But again, we can see some biological imperative behind it, just for biological survival. Just like we need a a group of people for our survival, we also are very much dependent on the leaders of that group for our survival. I mean, as children, we're dependent on our parents, literally for physical survival. And the same becomes true as we grow up. We have a, a strong dependency on the leaders in our in our group. And so there's, there's definitely some biological impetus to give special allegiance to the, to the leaders. And again, we just see it everywhere. You know, killing a king, killing a police officer, uh, killing your parents, killing a teacher are all considered far more grievous crimes than killing an ordinary person. You know, if, if you go out and, and, and shoot your coworker or you shoot your boss, it's not in the same category. Or killing, like we say, a police officer, or, you know, assassinating, we don't even call it killing, you assassinate a political leader. It, it's, it's in a different category. Somebody, you know, if people go into a house and kill the owners and rob them, or they kill their parents and rob them, we think about it very differently. These are, the, the authorities are supposed to be the people who are taking care of you, and to respond to them with aggression and with violence is considered a a supreme act of ingratitude. 
And gratitude is one of the 14 items of knowledge. Right? There are stories in the Panchatantra about how the worst thing is an ungrateful person. So when people respond with violence against their authorities, even when the authorities are aggressors, society becomes unstable, people become ungrateful. Now, again, this concept is, is weakening at the present time. And I would say it's weakening at the present time because so many people in positions of authority are no longer acting as protectors. But this was the situation here. Arjuna is saying, my authorities didn't protect me. Not only did they not protect me, they were in league with the aggressors. I mean, we think about Draupadi, who, you know, they're attempting to disrobe her, Dushashan, his heart-wrenching scene where Dushashan is dragging her into the assembly by the hair and trying to take off her clothes. And none of the elders, Bhishma, Drona, Kripa, Dhrastra, Arjuna mentions uh, Dhrastra in this verse, none of them came to the aid of Draupadi. They, they didn't. They, they watched Draupadi being humiliated and dishonored in front of everyone. So the problem is that when the, when the people who are in authority in the family are actually aggressors, then what do you do? You know, where, where's the line where you can say, even though you're a member of my group, even though you're a member of my family, or even though you're a leader in my group and a leader in my family, still a line's been crossed and I can now use violence against you. So the, the problem is especially intense for leaders themselves. Arjuna is a leader. He is a prince. He is a ksatriya. And he is supposed to set an example of prioritizing the greater family for the lesser family. So his greater family is the whole kingdom. His whole kingdom is a greater family than his blood family. And of course, the most intense and tear-jerking and controversial example of sacrificing one's own family for for the sake of the greater family is Lord Ramachandra. That Lord Ramachandra banishes Sita, although she's pregnant with twins, to the forest. Uh, not because she's done anything wrong at all, but because people are accusing her unjustly. And instead of defending her, which has been done several times, it's like, well, she's already been defended, she's already proved herself, and if people are still going to be criticizing, it's more important that there's peace in the greater family of the kingdom than that I get to have enjoyment with my family. And of course, for the Lord to be separated from Sita, I mean, the Lord loves, Prabhupada talks about Lord Ramachandra in this purport, how he fought with Ravana to protect Sita. So we have, you know, Ram is fighting a war with all of Ravana's family to protect Sita, but then as soon as Sita is criticized by people in his kingdom, then he stops protecting her. He abandons her. And his love for Sita, his anguish, of course it's all rasa, but his anguish at separation from Sita can't even be understood. The love between Ram and Sita. But he was willing to make the sacrifice for the greater good. So political leaders, especially, 
leaders of society are meant to, but especially the leaders of society in general. They're supposed to see the whole kingdom as family. They're not supposed to prioritize their blood family over the kingdom. So this was this conflict. Arjuna had, in one sense, two definitions of family. One definition of family was his blood family, uh, and a little beyond that, you know, his, his group, his teachers, I mean... Bhishma and Drona were not blood family, but they were his acharyas, they were part of his swajana. And then he has the whole kingdom to think about. The, this word praja is supposed to refer to the citizens and your children. He had to think about their welfare. Was he going to prioritize his personal family over the kingdom? That's called nepotism, where you have unqualified family members in positions of authority to benefit your family at the expense of the kingdom, at the expense of the country. And Srila Prabhupada, in speaking on this verse in, in 1976, he talks about how the whole world is our family. And many of us who join the Krishna consciousness movement as adults, we sacrificed our relationship with family members in order to make the world our family. I mean, when I wanted to join ISKCON, my father was in favor, my mother was opposed, and I disrespected my mother, I disobeyed my mother in order to uh, try to do good for the whole world, try to do good for everyone his family. And ultimately, this thinking of Arjuna as Swajana is considered a much lower platform. So, the other argument, the Arkta Shastras and the Dharma Shastras, Arjuna's right, that the Dharma Shastras that prescribe forgiveness and nonviolence are higher than the Artha Shastras that provide for killing aggressors. But here, he's wrong. Where he's prioritizing, he's, he's defining Swajana as my family and my associates rather than defining Swajana as the kingdom and the world. So here he's, so in one case he's choosing a higher principle over a lower principle, but in this case he's choosing a lower principle over a higher principle. But it, it's certainly difficult. I mean, any of us who've been in a situation where we have this conflict between family and... I mean, I had a devotee just recently when I was in India say to me, you know, what do you prioritize? I mean, well, your family or ISKCON? You know, he said, I prioritize... God, brother. He said, I prioritize my family. And, you know, it, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. Where, where do you do that? Where do you draw the line? Now then there's another problem here which is, is extremely significant for all of us and that is this problem between being a saintly person and being a ksatriya. Now, of course, many of us may not be ksatriyas but we may have some duty in the world in terms of our material identity that is in conflict with our identity as a spirit soul and a servant of Krishna. And Srila Prabhupada refers to this conflict in his purport to Bhagavad Gita 9.30, Apichet Sutrachara, where Krishna says that even if the devotee does something abominable, they're still saintly if they're his devotee. And Srila Prabhupada, in commenting on this, says that we have our material duties according to our body, and then those are our conditional activities, then we have the constitutional activities according to the soul, and usually they parallel one another, but sometimes they come into conflict with one another. And here again you have the kind of thing 
like where I disobeyed my mother to join the Hare Krishna movement. You know, we might not think in, in America in 2020 that an 18-year-old disobeying their mother to take up religion is, is a very sinful activity. But in, in a Vedic society, it would be. You know, I was, I was unmarried. I was still dependent on my parents. I mean, my father did give me permission. But to disobey my mother, I mean, we, we see Lord Ramachandra obeyed Kaikeyi and went into exile for 14 years. So I didn't do that. I said, I don't really care what you say, mother. I'm going to join the Hare Krishna movement. And this is something that's against my dharma according to the body. You know, when you're young, you follow your parents, you follow your teachers. When you're in the prime of life, then you, you're in the grihasta ashram, you have a responsibility to your spouse, to your children. When you're in midlife, you have a responsibility for austerity as a vanaprastha, then in old age to prepare for death. We have responsibilities as a brahmana, as a ksatriya, as a vaisha sudra, whether we work in the world of ideas, the world of government, the world of resources, the world of artistry. We have duties. Prabhupada would speak about these as prescribed duties, which when I first read this term, prescribed duties, I couldn't understand what Srila Prabhupada was talking about. I hadn't been raised with any kind of conception of prescribed, prescribed by whom? Prescribed by, well, what is Prabhupada? Prescribed duties. But Prabhupada's talking about prescribed duties by Varna and Ashrama. If, you're, if you work in the field of ideas, there's certain duties you're supposed to do. If you work in the field of government, there's certain duties you're supposed to do. And these duties are done to please the Lord. They're given, they're, the duties are given by the Lord, and they're given to please the Lord. And the duties of our ashram, what does a sannyasi do? What does a grahasta do? What does a, a brahmachari do? You know, what, we, these are according to our stage of life, our, our age mostly. You know, if I'm young... I'm supposed to study, I'm supposed to please my parents, I'm supposed to please my teachers. These are my duties that are prescribed in the Shastras and are prescribed by God. And then there's the duties of a devotee of the Lord. There's the, the duties on the level of the soul. And Krishna says, Sarva dharman pricha jamame kam sarnam vraja aham tvam sarva papevya mokshi shami ma Aham tam sarva papavyo. Arjuna here is talking about papa. And Krishna is going to say, Aham tam sarva papavyo mokshishyami masucha. Don't worry, you're absolved from all sinful reactions if you give up all of these dharmas, all of these prescribed duties, and just serve me. So as a ksatriya, Arjuna has a prescribed duty that he's supposed to punish aggressors for the good of the aggressor. For the good of the aggressor. Prabhupada would often say if a murderer is executed, then they don't have to suffer in the next life. They can even go to heaven because they've, they've already received their suffering. They've already received their reaction. And there are certain people in society who are designated as representatives of God who can give suffering to others, who can give punishment to others, so the person doesn't have to suffer their karma. So parents are supposed to rectify children, teachers with students, you know, gurus with disciples. I was hearing the other day where Prabhupada was saying, you know, 
parents and gurus, they shouldn't be just patting their children. They should be correcting them. They must correct them. And we have that story Prabhupada tells of this man who was a thief. He was going to be executed for being a thief. Before he was executed, he says, I want to talk to my auntie. My auntie raised me. So she comes up and he bites her ear. And she's like, why did you do that? He said, when I was young and I had, was developing this stealing habit, you didn't stop me. You know, you let me go on stealing and now here I'm being executed for it. So that's, that's the idea, that to, be, to suffer from bad karma, to have to go to the hellish planets, better to have some punishment in this life. So the Kshatriyas are supposed to punish criminals and aggressors as a, as a mercy on them that the punishment they're going to give in this life is much less than what they would have to suffer from their karma. They also punish the aggressors for the sake of, of the kingdom, for the sake of society. You know, you, you don't want rapists and arsonists and murderers running around society. So for the good of society, if someone's, you know, you don't, how do you know if they're going to do it again? Do you, they have to be punished, they have to be removed from society. So this is a very important duty of Ksatriya. That's the prescribed duty of Ksatriya. We, we should note that that's not the prescribed duty of everyone. It's not my duty that I should go around punishing criminals. You know, I'm, I'm not working in the government. I'm not a grahasta. That's for the grahastas who are working in government. And you know, nowadays there's this kind of vigilante mood that everybody should take it on themselves to be the punishers of everyone. You know, it, it's... It's actually very destructive. So we have that, and then we have Arjuna's duty as a devotee, which is to forgive. And Srila Prabhupada writes very significantly that it's more important to forgive in a political emergency. So you could say it's an emergency. You know, here are these aggressors that are running society, causing harm. That's a political emergency. The Prabhupada says it's more important to forgive. It's more important to forgive. Now, this problem that as a devotee of the Lord, regardless of one's ashram or one's varna, is supposed to be forgiving. I mean, particularly the brahmanas are supposed to be forgiving. Um, the renunciates, the sannyasis, and the brahmanas, etc., are supposed to be forgiving. But in general, Vaishnavas are supposed to be forgiving. Why are Vaishnavas supposed to be forgiving? Well, we're all sinful. All of us stand guilty before the Lord. None of us can say, like when Jesus was talking about, you know, anyone who has no sin can throw the stone at this adulterer. None of us, who of us can say, I have no lust, I have no anger, I have no envy, I have no greed. Who's going to make such a ridiculous statement? Who's going to say, you know, I've never caused harm to an innocent person or an innocent being? for my own selfish purposes. You know, who can, who can say such a thing? We might say, well, you know, it wasn't so important. I, I stole the cookies out of the kitchen and my brothers didn't get any because I wanted to eat them all. And, you know, well, that's not the same as going and stealing somebody's jewelry. But it, it's the same principle that I'm willing to harm others for my own enjoyment. You know, it's, it's, so who's above this? So if we don't forgive others, how can we be forgiven? I mean, Jesus said, 
um, Dear Lord, please forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I mean, why should Krishna show us mercy if we don't show mercy to others? And this concept is also part of what's behind being free from being a meat eater. How can I expect the Lord to be kind to me if I'm not kind to other living entities? And this concept that I should be kind to other living entities, we talked about how it's part of the Dharma Shastras, but it's also part of the Bhakti Shastras. That without being kind and forgiving to others, every all others, in, in fact, devotees are supposed to just forgive everybody all the time. I really like how uh, Adi Purusha Prabhu was saying last time when I was in Govardhan that our job description is to be an ocean of mercy. You know, we often look at it the other way. I really hope the Vaishnavas are an ocean of mercy to me. You know, maybe when we first take up Krishna consciousness, we have, as Vishnu Chakravati Thakur says in Madhurya Kanambadi, this false confidence. I mean, I know I did. And it, it's still there to some extent. This idea that, you know, well, I'm really a great devotee and it's just going to be another week or month before I'm in pure devotional service. I'm really close. You know, this, this pride of looking at ourselves and seeing how elevated we are. But as we go on in Krishna consciousness, we more and more see that it's just not true. That whatever faults I see in others, I have in some form. You know, maybe I don't have it in the same form. Maybe I steal gulogemins instead of diamonds. You know, whatever. So we may not, we may not see it. We may think, oh, that, that person over there has a fault that I don't have. But it's not true. Whatever faults exist, exists in me. So we start to become aware that we need mercy. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's hard to see this and be aware of it, but we start to understand, I, I need mercy. But we also have to be merciful to others. How can we say, well, I need mercy, but, but this person shouldn't get it. So if I want Krishna to forgive me, I need Krishna to forgive me. I remember I knew Vrindavan some years ago, Bhakti Tirtha Swami was asked, you know, why isn't everything fair? And the response was, well, do we, do we want everything to be fair? You know, if everything's fair, if I have to suffer the karmic reactions for everything I do that's wrong, I am never, ever, ever going to get out of this wheel of samsara. I don't know about everybody else, but I mean, for me, it, it just isn't going to happen. I do something wrong at least once a day, if not once an hour, if not at every moment. You know, it's... What are we going to do? I remember when my, uh, my daughter was building a house and she was saying how to build their house they had to disrupt the houses of the insects that were under the foundation. And, you know, we might say, well, the anthill and the termite mound and whatever... Insects are living there, they're not important. You know, my house is important enough, but again, going back to the other problem of who's our swajana, who's our family, well, the insects are also part of Krishna's family. Krishna likes 
the the ants as much as he likes us. He doesn't he doesn't have favorites, as he says in Bhagavad Gita. So why why can I disrupt the the houses of the ants to build my own house? You know, I need mercy for that. I need mercy for the the fact that all these ants were killed to build my house. There's the five sacrifices that the householders do every day for the accidental killing of insects or other entities. So I I need to have this forgiveness towards others. Otherwise, there's no possibility of my developing Krishna Prema. Just this practically blanket forgiveness. There, There are a lot of uh, organizations and uh, teachers at the modern day who emphasize the benefit of forgiveness for one's own self. That the process of forgiveness isn't saying that the person didn't do anything wrong, but it's saying, I let go of the desire to punish them. I, I cut this negative cord between me and them where I want them to suffer. And this, this wanting others to suffer, even aggressors, even people who've harmed us, even people who betrayed us, this wanting others to suffer means that I'm going to suffer. If I say, I want you to suffer for your misdeeds, then I'm going to have to suffer for my misdeeds. Because as Suruchi tells, Suniti rather tells Druva, whatever harm you desire for others, you will also have to experience. And we've seen that practically. We've seen it practically even among devotees, that we've seen if devotees say, this person should be really punished for this sinful act, even if it's a real sinful act, what happens? The person with that mood, they get punished. They end up having to go through whatever harm they desired for someone else. I mean, recently there was an article posted by one devotee, Samakarishi, who has been at the forefront of fighting child abuse in the Hare Krishna movement. And he realized that although he wanted to continue fighting against child abuse in the Hare Krishna movement, that he couldn't, he didn't want to maintain a mentality of wanting the abusers to suffer. That he had had the wrong mentality. So this as Prabhupada says, it's more important to forgive than any political emergency. So developing this mood within us of not holding any grudge ever, of not wishing any harm to anyone ever, certainly not wanting to be the instrument of harm. You know, Arjuna's on the battlefield, he would be the direct instrument of harm, never wanting anyone to be harmed ever. Even though we, we are honest about what they've done that's wrong. Prahlad was honest. My father tried to kill me, but I don't want him to suffer. I want him to be liberated. That's more important than a political emergency. Prabhupada uses the word emergency. So we have these these two things in competition, and Arjuna is taking the tact that, and here is where he's wrong, that his only reason for punishing these persons is for temporary happiness. He's saying, my, my only reason to act in my Satriya role rather than my Bhakta role is to enjoy the kingdom. To have, you know, as a Satriya, without a kingdom to rule, he had no legitimate means of maintaining himself. He needed at least a village 
or something needed people to take care of. And he said, you know, but for that, for the sake of my own livelihood and the sake of my own happiness, I'm not going to violate these saintly principles. So he was wrong there because Krishna didn't want him to fight the battle for the sake of his own material happiness. That wasn't the reason that Krishna was telling him to fight. So there Arjuna is making a mistake. But on the principle that a saintly person forgives and that that forgiveness is higher and more important than a political emergency. And that he was right. Now, I see that in our, uh, our, in our Krishna conscious societies, and I'm using the word societies in plural very intentionally, that this tendency of us as bhaktas, as servants of Krishna, to be forgiving ends up being a problem when there are people in the society who do horrible criminal acts and need to be brought to justice. And we have a, a real problem uh, in ISKCON and in other Vaishnava societies that if people commit crimes within the societies, there's, there's generally not justice. We don't have a good system of justice. We don't. I was just reading in Bhagavatam 7, Canto chapter 2, where Srila Prabhupada said that the Brahmanas and Kshatriyas will again be activated by the Krishna consciousness movement automatically, said automatically, the Brahmins and Kshatriyas would come. But we haven't really established in ISKCON or other Gaudiya societies a class of Kshatriyas who will punish people for the sake of the aggressor and for the sake of society. And we have this tendency to act either as saintly persons and forgive everyone because we're saintly or more insidious and a bigger problem is that we tend to forgive people because they're swajana. They're our family, they're other devotees, they're, in a mundane way, we're seeing them as part of our group, and uh, just kind of from an animal biological perspective, we're being lenient on people because they're part of our swajana. So whether we're excusing them because we're acting on a lower platform in terms of swajana, or whether we're forgiving them on the platform of saintliness, that's fine. But we need to have some class of satriyas who aren't going to do that. Now you might say, well, then is it, if you're satriya, how are you going to be saintly? And Prabhupada speaks about this, writes about this in this purport about Ram Rajya, that the satriyas are supposed to be saintly. But for a satriya to always be forgiving, sometimes Kshatriya needs to be forgiving, but for Kshatriya always to be forgiving, for Kshatriya becomes cowardice. Prabhupada uses the word cowardice and cowardly in this purport. So here we have kind of a mystery of the Bhagavad Gita that I can, I don't have to have this conflict between my eternal identity as Krishna's servant and my identities in this world. That I can act as Krishna's servant, but within the realm of my identities in this world. And of course, such is the ultimate conclusion of the Bhagavad Gita. That our, you know, when Krishna says, Sarvadharma and Parichajama, Mekam Sharanam Vajaram Tam Sarvapapabhyo Mokshi Shami Masujaha, you might think, how is that? compatible with Krishna telling Arjuna to fight as Ksatriya, but he's not telling him to fight as Ksatriya. He's saying, give up your identity as Ksatriya, only have your identity 
as a spirit soul. Only have your identity as my servant. And do your service as a, superficially as a Ksatriya to please me. Because I'm asking it. So here we come to the solution. That the only way that I can, I or anybody, any of us, can figure out when we have these competitions, we have Artha Shastra and Dharma Shastra, we have, I have to be loyal to my people, to my family, especially to my authorities, but I have to maintain religious principles for the greater family, for the world family. As a, as a devotee of Krishna, I unconditionally wish everyone well. I will never wish anyone harm, even if they're aggressors, and I will never personally be the instrument of their harm. But uh, if I have the role of a ksatriya, it is my duty. Even as a parent, it's my duty to correct my child. It's my duty to correct a, a student or a disciple. It's a duty to correct an employee. You know, it's not just the duty of the big government. So, if I'm in touch with Krishna, fully in that identity, then I get clarity that I'm not really acting as a parent, I'm not really acting as a government leader, I'm not really acting as a brahmana even, I'm not acting as any of those things, I'm certainly not acting in a swajana, I'm not acting in an arthashastra, I'm not acting in a dharmashastra, I'm acting out of love for Krishna. As Krishna says, I'm telling you this in the fourth chapter, telling you this because you are my devotee and my friend. Bhaktasime, Sakacheti, you are my devotee and my friend. Because I am Krishna's devotee and because I am Krishna's friend, because uh, Krishna is my beloved, I am his beloved. I am Krishna's, Krishna is mine. So I do what pleases him. And of course, many times what pleases Krishna is going to look exactly like the rules of Varna and Ashram that I would be doing anyway. You know, of course, because those rules of Varna and Ashram, the rules of the Dharma Shastras, the Artha Shastras, the rules of teaching family, Dharman Tushaksha Bhagavad Pranitam, they all come from Krishna. This idea, honor your father and mother, honor your teacher, kill aggressors, be kind to everybody. <laughs> all these things come from God. Yes? So generally speaking, if I'm fully, totally in tune with what Krishna wants me to do, then that's going to look, most of the time, exactly like what I would do according to my material designation. You know, if I'm a grahasta brahmana, or I'm a vanaprasta, or I'm a grahasta shudra, Whatever I would have done in that identity, for my own sense gratification even, I'm going to end up doing something very similar to please Krishna, if I'm fixed in my spiritual identity. But it's not even karma yoga. Karma yoga means I'm doing that for my own salvation. Bhakti yoga may look like karma kanda, it may look like karma yoga, but it's not. I'm, I'm just doing whatever my beloved wants. And if my beloved wants me to violate these ordinary things, I will. 
If he wants me to follow them, I will. Here Arjuna is breaking some of them and following others of them. He's breaking the family traditions. He's breaking the respect for teachers. He's breaking that. He's breaking the Dharma Shastras. He's breaking all of that. He, what he's following is Kshatriya Dharma. But he's, he, and he's even breaking the general principles of a bhakta because Krishna is saying, no, don't act with external forgiveness. Kill them. Now, of course, Arjuna is fighting without malice. And, and here we find a mystery of how the devotees can't be pigeonholed in any kind of varna or ashrama. Arjuna has no malice, even at this point towards Duryodhana and Dushasana. He has only compassion. And whatever anger he's exhibiting, Prabhupada said he couldn't fight without anger, whatever anger he's exhibiting is, is, is a rasa. It's not some mundane anger of betrayal and like that. So we come to the final point here, which is the point I assume somebody will ask if I don't address it, and that is, well, how do we know what Krishna wants us to do? How do we get that clarity when we have these competing things? And we do. You know, all of us at certain points in our life have competing dharmas. Maybe not every day, maybe not every week, but we do have them. And we know other people who have them. What do we do? How do we get clarity? As to, or, or even on a, on a moment-to-moment basis, how do we get clarity as to what will please Krishna? So one can say we have the Shastra. But here we see, you know, Artha Shastra says one thing, Dharma Shastra says another thing. Even there's different things in the Bhagavad Gita. You know, for one who's been honored, dishonor is worse than death, or don't care about honor and dishonor. Two apparently opposite things. And even Arjuna says to Krishna, I'm bewildered by your equivocal instructions. So we have Shastra, but Shastra is like a pharmacy with every possible medicine, you know, thousands of medicines. All right, then we have the uh, commentaries of the saintly persons, but they don't always agree with each other. You know, one saintly person will say, well, we understand it this way, another saintly person will say, I understand it that way. So, of course, we have Guru. And the guru is, a, traditionally, one's guru, you would know the guru well, the guru knows you, and the guru gives, can give specific tailor-made guidance. Of course, the idea is that one got this kind of guidance as a child and a young person living closely with the guru, and that then one goes on in one's life, and one has imbibed the, the teachings and the mood of one's guru, so you don't have to call your guru up all the time, you know, uh, should I buy a, a, a pink sofa or a brown sofa or a, you know orange sofa, whatever? And you have people that, that do this that will. I know people in this kind who do this kind of thing that will write to their guru and say, you know, "Should I study this verse of the Bhagavad Gita or that verse of the Bhagavad Gita, or should I marry this person or that person, or what color should I paint my walls or things like this?" So that that's that's ridiculous. But we're supposed to imbibe the, the general mood and the direction of the guru, and the guru trains us which saintly persons in uh, example and instructions are pertinent for us and which sections of the Shastra are pertinent for us. And I can't emphasize how important that is. 
that we see many times Srila Prabhupada will direct his followers, his disciples, his followers in ISKCON society in a way that he knows is right for that particular time and place, even if Srila Bhaktisanta did something else, or Bhakti Vinod did something else, or Rupa Goswami did something else, and, and Prabhupada is directing for that circumstance, like he wrote to Bhakti Sanata, oldest of all, but a new dress, miracle done, your divine grace. And part of the idea of parampara, part of why we don't have Ritvik initiations, is that it's supposed to go on, that in, for each circumstance and each changing time, place, circumstance, and person, that devotees have to understand how to apply the scripture to that place. And then, of course, we're also supposed to be in touch with Chaitaguru. We're supposed to be in touch with the Lord in the heart. We're supposed to have a, a direct personal connection. As Prabhupada said, the guru is the via media, but still the connection is direct. And we're supposed to be cultivating that relationship with the Lord, where we can understand what is the Lord's desire in our life. Such, such understanding is supposed to come through the practice of bhakti yoga. So we have the shastras, we have the saintly persons, we have guru, and we also have our relationship, our personal relationship with the Lord. As Prabhupada says, we judge by the result. So if something is going to bring pain and suffering to me and others, then it's not the will of the Lord, you know, if something is going to be good for everyone. But even that's hard to tell. Arjuna was thinking that this, this war was only going to bring pain and suffering. So we have about eight minutes for questions and comments. This is very deep. I'm sure we can have questions and comments for a very long time. Uh, so I don't see anything, and nobody's been writing questions in the chat window. But if anybody wants to unmute themselves and ask questions verbally, if you want to put a question in the chat window, uh, we can do that too. Uh, Susan, you have to unmute yourself. upon forgiveness very lightly. And, you know, forgiveness is the most compassionate thing we can do towards others. But sometimes I wonder, all this, you know, how is a person supposed to know, we live in a, in a group, we live in a society, and we need to, uh, to go, you know, to work around the laws that govern us. So how do we know how do we let somebody know that they have done something wrong? So somewhere there has to be an understanding that a certain behavior or a certain act was wrong. I don't mean that we're trying to punish, we don't try to, you know, to, um, to get justice. Because, you know, justice is a form of unexpressed anger. I mean, we want justice. But if we are going to be you know, be compassionate about it, how do we let this person know you've done wrong? And and they're supposed to, you know, understand or awaken to the fact that such thing has hurt, has done damage. Thank you for for asking that. And, um, you know, this class wasn't primarily on forgiveness. It was primarily on how do we balance and make decisions when there's competing dharmas and competing uh, duties to do? 
So I do give uh, another class on forgiveness specifically. It's on ISKCON Desire Tree, and that's another hour and a half class. Uh, also, uh, Mahatma Prabhu has a whole series of seminars on forgiveness. There is also a book called Forgive for Good. I forget the name of the author, but it's a, it's a very popular book. Uh, I could probably find it out. But anyway, there's... There's a, a number of places to go to really explore what forgiveness means. And there's, there's uh, forgiveness in terms of justice and there's forgiveness in terms of ourself. When we talk about justice, justice is the jurisdiction of government. It's, it's the jurisdiction of government to make sure that justice, not in terms of anger, but in terms of compassion for the perpetrator and compassion for society is put into place. And ideally what happens, if someone does a criminal wrong, we contact the government and the government applies justice in a dispassionate and compassionate way. That is what is supposed to happen in a sane society. Now, of course, first of all, that doesn't always happen with criminal offenses. Uh, one of my friends uh, confided in me about a criminal offense that was done to her so many years ago that the statute of limitation has run out. So she's no longer able, according to the law, to go to law enforcement and say, this was done to me so many years ago. You know, if somebody steals from you, rapes you, burns down your house, but you take a long time to report it, and this especially tends to happen with sexual crimes, you, you lose the, you, you, the time run out. You have a certain amount of time you can report it and it, it runs out. So then you can't involve law enforcement. Or, you know, I had a situation in London many years ago where someone broke into the, the apartment where I was staying and stole my computer. And the police officer came and filed a report, but he honestly said, we're not going to do anything about this. You know, we're, we're not going to go after the criminal. So we have, uh, law enforcement has its limitations. But that's the way it's supposed to work. And I'm not supposed to, and you're not supposed to, and, and we're not supposed to take the role of vigilantes and take on the role of law enforcement into our own hands. We're, we're crossing a boundary out of our duty when we do that. Then you have the, the, the realm of wrongs that are not criminal. You know, criminal wrongs are supposed to go to law enforcement, and that's their problem. And if law enforcement doesn't follow through, they're karmically culpable, not me. But what about harms done that are not in the, reign, in the realm of criminality? that we wouldn't report to law enforcement because they're not like that. You know, somebody says something that hurts our feelings or they do something that hurts our feelings or they do something that disturbs our life. How do we tell them they've done something wrong? Well, one question is, why do we want to tell them that they've done something wrong? What's our motive for telling them that we want, to do, tell them, that we want them to know that they've done something wrong? What's driving us? Often, what's driving us is our own protection. Well, if I tell them they've done something wrong, then they'll know and they won't do it again, and then I'll be okay. And 
Oh, right? But ultimately we're supposed to be have our protection from God. Then I might have another driver that I want to tell them they've done something wrong for their good. Because if they do something wrong, they're going to get a reaction and they're going to suffer. But is it my place to tell people that they've done something wrong? I see people doing wrong things all the time that are not... I don't have any relationship with them where I'm supposed to be the one to correct them. I'm not their mother, I'm not their teacher, I'm not their guru, I'm not their employer, I, I have no standing. I, I don't really want random people coming up to me and correcting me. None of us would like that. None would like that if, if people that, you know, just, well, I'm going to just tell you what you've done wrong. So we need to look at that. Now, the basic answer is, if someone's done something wrong that with whom I have any kind of a relationship and the thing that they've done wrong is harming the relationship, then to serve them and to serve the relationship, I want to inform them that I've been hurt and this is something wrong that's hurting our relationship. But how they respond to it is up to them. And ultimately, I cannot expect that everybody with whom I have a relationship is always going to be respectful of my feelings and my needs in the ways that I want them to be. And the truth is, I'm not always respectful of their feelings and their needs in the way they want me to be. That's the truth. That other people have to, the other people who deal with me regularly have to tolerate a lot of things from me that they would prefer not to tolerate and they choose to be very forgiving because they value the relationship over what's right and wrong. And that anyone with whom you have a close, ongoing relationship, you either have to excuse their transgressions or you know, justify them in some way, or you can't, you can't deal with them. We're, we're all doing so many wrong things and hurting people all the time. So that's... You know, in the context of a relationship, we can learn ways of expressing ourselves properly, which I don't have time to go into now. But there are many ways of expressing how we feel uh, that's, not, that's not a blaming way, that's not an accusatory way, but where we're able to express our feelings. And sometimes, you know, maybe we just have to write something in a journal. Maybe we just have to pray to Krishna. And, you know, it depends again when we're talking about non-criminal offenses. But it's, it's not our business to fix everybody's wrong behavior. You know, it's just not. I mean, I can't fix all my wrong behavior. I, I, you know, can I fix everything wrong about myself? If I'm honest, I'd have to say, no, I can't. I've had, I have things that I've struggled with my whole life that I haven't been able to fix. I can only fix by the grace of God. So if, if I can't fix all of my problems, how do I think I can fix somebody else's problems? And why do I have the, where do I have the standing to do that? But again, if it's within a relationship, you know, your friend, they're your family member, and there's something going on that's really causing harm to you or to others, then there's ways, which we don't have time to get to tonight, there's ways to bring that up that are respectful, non-blaming and are more likely to get a positive response than others. But there's, I don't know of any method or technique or mood that will always do that. 
in any relationship, everybody has to have a forgiving and tolerant attitude towards many things, or the relationship just can't go on. It, it's just not possible. You know, we're all flawed. We all hurt each other. So there's this distinction between something that's criminal and something that's that's not criminal. There's things that are our service and not our service. And the main reason that we want to have a mood of forgiveness is for our own internal peace and happiness. Not as a way of saying nobody does anything wrong, but so we're not full of anger and fear and anxiety and, you know... (laughs) That we're living, that we're living our life, that we're not just concerned about someone else's life. But anyway, forgiveness, as I say, is, is a very involved topic, and I wasn't trying to just focus on forgiveness tonight. And so, if you're interested, I, I do have seminars and handouts uh, on my website uh, that you can get, and Mahatma also has some detailed. And there's there's a number of very good books and courses on what forgiveness means, what's the value of forgiveness, how does forgiveness free us in inside. So I think we need to end now. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Uh, Shri Mad Bhagavad Gita Ki Jai. Shri Prabhupada Ki Jai.